The Athletic. Totally Football Show. This won't take long. Today, totally reduced fixture list featuring just four matches but one outright stunner Sunday in North London. We look back on a weekend marked by Omicron and Omicronic decisions, discuss Harry Winks and Gabriel Winks, why we'll miss referees when they're gone and how South America's joining the Nations League. It's all coming up in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Monday 20th of December, and lovely to have you with us, listener. We've got a lovely panel for you, too, featuring Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Also with us, Charlie Eccleshare. Hi, James. And hello to you. And Natalie Jedra of ESPN Brazil. Hello. Hi, Natalie. Yeah, delightful to have you all with us. Uh, Charlie and Natalie, you were both at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium late Sunday for, if not the game of the season so far, certainly the game of the round. Yeah, I think it was the game of the season. I mean, the only one I could think of compete with it is another 2-2 involving Liverpool, which was the City game um, back in October, I think that was. Uh, but I just, it was completely relentless. I mean, barely a few minutes went by without some sort of major incident. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it and thought, you know, Spurs in the end, probably a little bit disappointed not to have won it. Liverpool mm. would also be annoyed, probably for different reasons, you know, with refereeing decisions and what have you but um yeah I, just one of those games where you just can't pause to take breath had, had everything cards uh, harry kane goal uh, and also a healthy dose of real refereeing controversy kind of everything you want we'll, we'll get more onto the game in a second or two but but natalie you enjoyed it oh yeah and i'm voting this for for game of the season because oh, yeah? i wasn't at anfield so <laughs> for me it's an obvious decision. doesn't count yes. doesn't count yes doesn't really count was it wasn't important all right well it was spurs liverpool very much on our agenda today this not the only high-powered meeting of football minds that's going on on this monday the 20th of december there's also a premier league get together wine and cheese no doubt a feature of that <laughs> about whether to uh, ooh, postpone the entire round of festive fixtures after Boxing Day. So this is basically on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of that week, 28, 29, 30th. I, I think I'm right in saying that. Charlie, what, what, what's your take on this? The decision may well have come out by the time we uh, actually uh, reach you, listener. But Charlie, in the interim, what, what's your take on this? How likely is this to happen? Well, yeah, this was something we reported on The Athletic yesterday. Um I mean, given the state of a lot of clubs that they're in, I imagine there's a good chance it will. this motion will be passed because so many clubs have been hit badly. And I do think there's a big issue. I mean, that 26th to 28th turnaround is ludicrous. The only way it's in any way fair, and it's never fair on the players, is that both teams have done it. But if you've got a situation whereby one team's playing on the 28th, but hasn't played on the 26th against one who has, then that just seems such an imbalance. But obviously the main thing here is just that it's totally out of control. Um, COVID at a lot of clubs and there needs to be some sort of break. And it's just hard to imagine a lot of teams are going to be able to play both of those fixtures anyway, given that they're struggling to do it right now. Then you chuck in an even more congested calendar. It just seems ludicrous. Yeah, I think as, as Charlie says, there's, there's my feeling for it happening is that there are two reasons for, for clubs to vote for this motion. The first is that they have a, an outbreak of COVID cases and therefore they would like a, a kind of circuit breaker to either to enforce bubbles or just to get people out of isolation. Um, and the second reason is if you don't have any COVID cases and you're worried about your players having to play four games in 12 days and, and not being able to rotate as we have seen Premier League clubs do quite a lot over the last few years that that 28th game quite often becomes a almost a an end of season feel in terms of the the starting 11s because managers just feel that players can't play 26th 28th and the first so yeah if, if, if it is transpires that they just need the 14 votes which is what usually happens at these meetings then I think it probably will go through yeah mm. I mean the main counter argument that, that I've heard from people is that well Given how many games are being postponed and how ridiculous the second half of the season is is going to be, are we in a position where we can cancel game or postpone games that could go ahead? You know, this sense that we just need to get as many played as we possibly can, you know, whenever, wherever. 
I, I can see that, but I, it just feels at the moment like things are totally out of control. And, and, and always with COVID, there's this short-term versus long-term thing. And so, yes, it might be that you can squeeze in one game on December 28th. But if that then worsens the situation in the medium to longer term, then it's, it's not a good idea. Hmm. There are, I mean, strong arguments that taking a break is not, not going to make too much difference in terms of player health uh, while the pandemic is raging on regardless in the rest of society however i think it would do two things one is preserve a little bit of sporting integrity uh, this weekend was huge fun but i think in a lot of people's minds a lot of these results deserve a bit of an asterisk uh, next time and having a continued series of of rounds like this might really make the, the the title race and all the questions seem a little bit artificial and the other thing is is at least safeguard the fans who we saw this weekend uh, notified only hours. I mean, understandably, it's still notified only hours uh, before kickoff that the uh, Villa game wasn't going ahead. So at least with one round postponed in, in its entirety, we'd all know at least where we stand. How are the Carabao Cup managing to tiptoe through all of this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Carabao Cup, it, its durability is is quite impressive that it's back to two two legs in the semi-final. I mean, that has been like crying out to be gotten rid of for so long. Finally, last year, it was like, okay, great, we can get rid of that. And it's back. So of all the things, surely once that was gone, you don't then extend it again. But yeah, seemingly um, the Carabao Cup happily goes on in its kind of weird vacuum. Though I suspect there may be cancellations there. Sort of football's apocalypse cockroach just sort of <laughs> scuttling around. I mean, the, the, I think the big question for players away from games being postponed at little notice is whether they are going to have to go back into bubbles because that is the only, and it's not airtight, but it's the only um, persuasive way, I think, of having a, a second half of the season that isn't affected. And even that isn't particularly easy because of the, the variation between unvaccinated and vaccinated players. There's an argument that putting them all in the same bubble is is not particularly helpful in the first place. So that that's the big question in terms of player welfare. I think more more so even than making them play game after game when they're tired, because players did not understandably did not enjoy spending months in that enforced bubble and being kind of cut off from social life. It, it's easier to stomach for them if the country is in a kind of is in the same well, lockdown, but if it's not, then it's pretty hard. That's the key point, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing sticking to bubbles when everyone else is, but I think footballers and I'm not, you know, I know footballers don't get much sympathy from people given how well paid they are, etc, etc, etc. But it's quite hard to ask a group of people to do something that no one else is doing. Um, you know, and I know, yeah, you can say it's for their health and safety, but it's also mainly just to service us and provide entertainment for us. So I, I just think that's such a difficult thing to expect people to do realistically. I have to say, though, that although the cases for postponing around are compelling, uh, we pretty much enjoyed that they did get some games away this weekend, particularly given the quality uh, of some of the football on display. Six games postponed then, four matches played, the results, Arsenal beating Leeds Saturday 4-1 at Ellen Road, Sunday then 4-0 for Man City at Newcastle, goalers for Wolves and Chelsea, and that barnstorming 2-2 between Spurs and Liverpool witnessed firsthand by Charlie and Natalie. That's where we'll start. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Wicks in behind Cater. Can Son get there first? He has done. It's 2 2. This time they snap for the chance. What a game. Sunday afternoon at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, Spurs 2 Liverpool 2, a game Natalie appropriately played at a fever pitch. <laughs> Yes, well, a, a, a few things really caught me off guard from this match. And I think the first one was the pace that Spurs showed. Uh, everyone was questioning which type of game we were having after two weeks of them not playing. And they really showed a strong pace, a, a, a very strong rhythm against a Liverpool who plays like that. And the individuals, like uh, Dele Ali missed a couple of good chances, but his body language was just completely different. His intentions were very clear during the match. Harry Kane just seemed, he seemed more connected. He seemed more engaged with everything that was happening. Still, he missed a few chances he wouldn't normally miss. And uh, since we're talking about Hurricane Dele Alli and the midfield that was really uh, a positive from Spurs, we always talk about the great job Antonio Conte does with his teams defensively. But Tottenham were making 
all the right runs in the final third. We saw again Son and Kane exploring the high lines from Liverpool. Uh, the, the ball from Ndombele to Harry Kane on the first goal was really good. Winks and Dele Alli were really good. They, they seemed more driven and closer to a Spurs that is that Spurs that's perfectly able to break the lines. So in this sense, offensively, they they exceeded my expectations, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the things that Tottenham fans were really, really hoping for when Conte came in was to give them some structure in an attacking sense. As, as Natalie says, you know, we, we we expected the defensive side. But also, I mean, Conte, this is one of his great skills, is, is his ability to make teams uh, attack with purpose. We saw that at Inter, we saw it at Chelsea, we've seen it wherever he's been. And, and it's just so clear that they have an attacking plan that certainly wasn't there under Nuno. Under Mourinho, it felt a bit ad hoc. It was, you know, at times it was basically you've got Kane and Son who are world class. Kane drop deep and kind of makes the magic, and, and and that worked for a while, but it wasn't really sustainable uh, in the long term. But yeah, you could see yesterday um, they had such a clear plan. I mean, they were helped. I have to say, but Liverpool played as if Van Dijk was there. It mm. was as if they'd forgotten he wasn't. I mean, you you can afford to push really high up when you've got someone like Van Dijk. But it was almost like they just had no time on the training pitch and Klopp had to be a bit like, let's just kind of hope this works. Um, but, and it just absolutely didn't. I mean, those wide open spaces that they were leaving and they just couldn't recover them. So, And Spurs were wise to that. And, and what you'd have was someone like Kane would drop in, take someone away, open up the space for Son, clip those balls kind of over Alexander-Arnold's inside shoulder and Son was away again and again and again. Um and so that that second goal, which obviously is is a big error from Allison, felt like the culmination of the weight of those, you know, just so many of those passes played that eventually the pressure told. And I mean, they had so many chances; they really, really could have won this game. Um, and very encouraging. I mean, a big issue Spurs have had for a long, long time now, and we've seen this in the Europa League and the Europa Conference League, especially, is that when their fringe players are given a chance, they don't step up. This is one of the biggest issues they've had uh, over the last couple of seasons. And so to see Winks, Deli, Sessignon and Dombele come in and play so well, especially those first three, and probably, and Winks, I think, was arguably man of the match, um, played a big part in both of Spurs' goals. That was so encouraging. And, And Conte said something really interesting after, which sounds quite basic, but he was basically like, I have to improve every player. That's the only way we can do this. And and that is something that's forgotten. I mean, and you look at Klopp's Liverpool, that is exactly what Klopp has done. You talk about Andy Robertson yesterday, who looks every inch of the world-class left back, got a goal, got an assist. He was signed for eight million from Hull. No one cared when Liverpool mm. signed him, but he's Klopp has turned him into this world-class player. Same with the someone like Roberto Gina Carlos. Well, exactly, yeah, according to Gary Neville. And and that's what Conte has to do because they're not going to outspend City and Chelsea. That's the only way a team like Liverpool or Spurs can win the league. And Conte, the early signs are really, really good in that regard. Hmm. What do you think, Natalie? Would you have, how would Roberto Carlos and Cafu do, which I think was the other player that Gary Neville cited, uh, slotting into that Liverpool side? You know, I was thinking about that because I thought that the comparison was very interesting. Uh, I think the difference... Well, they they would fit really well. I think that's pretty obvious. But I think the main difference is that today, players like Robertson and like uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold and even Cancelo that we'll we'll mention later, I think they're bringing this fullback position to a different level because Cafu and Roberto Carlos, they were exceptional fullbacks. And now the fullbacks are much more than fullbacks. Mm. So I'm not saying that they're better than Cafuino Roberto Carlos. I'm just putting into context, you know. And, uh, like, of course, Roberto Carlos had a free kick and that was a, a big weapon for him. One but of them. they're more... Yes, just one of them, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. And, but they're more sophisticated. And I think that's very interesting to see how, how they will make an impact on, on the next generations of, of fullbacks because they have to show so much more now. Yeah, absolutely. Can I, can I ask you something, Natalie? This is something yeah. that um, has intrigued me over the last few months. It's Emerson Royale. When, when Spurs signed him, I think there was this a kind of reverse xenophobia where everyone was like, he's Brazilian? He's a fullback? He'll be Cafu and Maicon kind of rolled into one. And actually, when they signed him, people I spoke to in Brazil and who'd watched him in Spain were like, mm, he's actually more defensive than an attacking right back. What, what's your read on him? I mean, he, he's been kind of solid, if unspectacular, and gone a bit against that grain of the stereotypical Brazilian fullback. 
Yes, I think for a Brazilian to be a fullback is is kind of a an identity crisis because during our whole lives we we always believe that the fullbacks they they have to be offensive they 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 can't defend mm. and in Brazil we always heard that when the fullbacks moved to Europe that's when they would learn to defend and that's when they would help the national team in this sense. So Emerson Royal he he moved to to Europe uh, in a very young age and uh, as most of them and and developed this side but uh, this defensive side and i think he feels more comfortable with that he's making his name into the national team recently so mm. i think people are getting used to to him but the the fullback position in brazil is very peculiar because people always expect them to attack and and that's it you know daniel you were watching this from a safe distance what what made this game so special for you I think inevitably, kind of bigger picture stuff, it did have this sort of end of term feel to it in Hmm. that this might be the last game that gets played with this intensity for between two very good teams for for a little while. And look, I think Liverpool suffered. I can see why Jurgen Klopp is, is peeved by decisions and I can also see why he's peeved that Tottenham had two weeks off before and he didn't. And I, I, I strongly suspect that dictated Tottenham's mood, that they had, felt that they had the energy to to go out and attack Liverpool. But it's interesting that Liverpool really couldn't cope with that. I know they had a, a very second-string midfield, Morton mm. obviously making, you know, only just first taking strides, Milner and Cater. None of those get into Liverpool's first-choice midfield. And Tottenham ruled that midfield. But Tottenham ruled that midfield without their first choice. You know, Winks was... I agree with Charlie. I think Winks was the best player on the pitch. And if there was one area of that Spurs team at kickoff that I thought might struggle, it was that central midfield. And actually, that was the bit that flourished. I didn't think Kane would get the chances he did get. And, and he did and missed them, I thought. So the game kind of completely went on its head for what I expected. I thought Liverpool would try and control possession. I thought Spurs would probably let them. And I thought Spurs would probably try and hit on the counter and make the most of the few chances that came their way. And pretty much the opposite happened. And and should add as well, the good news keeps coming for Tottenham because as we record this podcast, we hear that they uh, have to forfeit their last match of the Europa Conference League and are subject to appeal if they decide to go down that route. They are out of the Europa Conference League and... I've said basically since August they should get out of this competition. So mm. I think that's really, really good for them. If they successfully appeal, do they get to miss two matches? <laughs> it means they don't have to play next season, whatever ah, happens right. in that competition. They get an exemption. No, I mean, like that. some people are saying, oh, well, some people are like, oh, you know, who are Tottenham to not want to win a trophy? They should want to win every trophy they're in. But it's, it's not, it's meaningless, I really feel. And yes, there's a revenue argument, but the revenue that they could get by finishing in the top four, which feels like a genuine possibility now, is so, so much higher. So, yeah, I think just be be happy that they're out of this competition. Mm. All the most memorable matches probably need some real controversy just to add a bit of bite one way or the other for both sets of supporters. This one certainly had that. A mm. couple of really egregious-looking decisions, both of which went against Liverpool. The Harry Kane challenge on... Andy Robertson, and the decision not to even consult the VAR monitor for that. Who was it who clattered into the back of Jota just as he was poised to Emerson have a Emerson Royale chance? whilst Emerson on a booking, Royale. so that could have been a red. Emerson with cheese. So, yeah, hard not to, hard not to feel for uh, Klopp when he inveigled against Paul Tierney at the final whistle. Yeah, I, I think the the reality is that the 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 kind of juxtaposition between Robertson getting a red and Kane getting a yellow mm. looked really bad. I think if you'd have just had one of those instances in the same game, you could have made arguments for them. But I think what they were probably... What argument would you have made for not... Well, the I think they were both made cards. on Monday morning is that because Robertson, and this I think is from Pogmore themselves, that because Robertson was actually jumping to avoid the oncoming potentially leg-breaking studs, that that therefore somehow declassified Kane's challenge in terms of the level of of peril. For them to not only think that, but then to think that that helps explain the situation tells you everything you need to know. I mean, the, the lack of understanding of how football works. Like if that if that's their explanation, then. Yeah, I mean, no wonder these decisions are being made. Right. Yeah, I, I well, think why should that? Both... Why should that? So what? So the player should be incentivized to have his leg broken. <laughs> it's completely ludicrous. I like the idea of sending on a, a young kid just to get his leg broken to make sure you get a red card. <laughs> <laughs> Seems pretty harsh. Yeah, I think they were both. I mean, they were both red cards. I, on the penalty, 
on first viewing, my gut instinct is that that's one of those penalties that if it's given, people say it's soft, and if it's not given, really? people say it mm. should be a penalty. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I probably would have given it, but then I don't think that's a huge controversy. I think to an extent, Jota was kind of sort of looking to get pushed over, which is an odd thing to say, because if you get pushed over, you get pushed over. But um, yeah, I think I didn't have a huge issue with that. And and weirdly, that seemed to be Klopp's biggest gripe at the end of the game with Tierney was not getting the penalty decision. I have to say, I know he was angry, but to storm the pitch and say, like, it's all, it's only ever you, you're the only one I have a problem with. I mean, I can remember Klopp criticising many other referees in the past. I know he gets into it, shall we say, but I thought that was pretty poor. All yeah, right. Klopp does this a lot. And, you know, if, if it were other managers, they'd get a lot more grief for it. He behaves pretty badly in a way that other managers, when they have, have got quite a hard time. I mean, I think Paul Tierney actually touched on something quite interesting there of the Jota stopping to get the contact. Because we're seeing so much of that. And this is becoming a thing whereby, you know, penalties used to be a punishment for, well, they, they should be a punishment for sort of bad behaviour. Now it almost feels like you're rewarding people for clever play. And. Yeah, I, I, I felt this was. I, I must. Th- this admit, was borderline. This, I don't feel this it falls into that category. And, and besides, that's been allowing your opponent to, you know, slowing down, allowing your opponent to run into you has been. That's not a new development. Mm. And it didn't seem to me that this was a particularly outrageous example of that. He's he's two players converge on him. He has the ball run in front of him. One of them runs into him from the behind. He hasn't stopped dead. He's still moving, Jota, and he's he's absolutely floored by it. But uh, I mean. Daniel, if you if you with your expert eye feel that it wasn't a, a clear penalty, then then maybe I'm over overreacting. <laughs> feel like you're chucking in the deep in there, no, but not no, at I, all, not at all. I, what do you think, Natalie? No, I think what ba- we we can discuss. We can we can have a huge argument about the penalty, but what right. really baffles me is the lack of consistency going to the VR, VAR screen. This is what I, I think mm. it's unacceptable. If you have two. Two potential red cards like Kane and Robertson. Why did he go to the screen to one and didn't go to the screen to the other? And then people will think that the VAR is the problem. And when VAR arrived at the Premier League, they they made a big case of how uh, all these referees have been working together and trusting each other in their in their uh, decisions. And now I don't understand why it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all and then it, you you kind of create this this case against VAR when it's not VAR itself is the people that, that are operating it although that's part of the case against VAR that people operate it and that you're still going to get the delays and you're still still going to get the, the the issues at the end of it I have to say I missed all of this because I was busy doing a City A match with an equally extraordinary VAR or lack of decision at the end and so I caught it on match the day after with Alan Shearer absolutely tearing into to Portini and, and, and VAR. But the thing is, what's so maddening about it is like you get goals like the Milan one yesterday that mm. was ruled out. That's utterly mad. And that's why you can't celebrate goals anymore. You genuinely can't because like that's a goal that in real time, on, on TV, let alone if you're at the ground, you're not thinking... There's nothing watching that goal live on TV and certainly so on the ground just, makes you just, think, should we celebrate the goal? Right. So you just can't celebrate goals. And that and the only way, sorry to right. run, the only way that not celebrating goals, I mean, there's no way you can justify it because that's the best thing in football has been stripped away. The only way you can justify it is to say, yeah, but it means you get players sent off when otherwise they wouldn't or you get the right decisions. But when that's not even happening, when referees aren't competent enough to do it, the upside of VAR is just nowhere near high enough. Right. Nowhere near. VAR chat to the Carabao Cup to things that will still exist after the pandemic. <laughs> I just, I a very briefly, and without wanting to seem too kind yeah. of unnecessarily tedious, we do have a, a refereeing crisis in this country. Standards probably are dropping. And there is a reason for that. And that's because there's not enough competition for places within um, referees because there's a, a growing shortage at grassroots level because of you know a verbal and physical abuse there, which is therefore eventually going to kind of drip upwards if you will to the top level and the one thing VAR has done is it's vastly increased the need of for refereeing expertise at that top level because you need extra referees for games because you need at least one at Stockley Park watching things and we don't have we, we have a shortage of referees or, or high class referees at exactly the time when we need more and more and this isn't going to go away it really isn't. That's a very good but point, Also, Daniel. the thing is, it, 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 that's a really good point. And VAR does expose referees in a way that 
they weren't before. So like the handball rule basically muddled along for the first 125 years of football as you kind of know one when you see one and we sort of got by with that. But then when you have VAR and you're stopping it and you're saying, okay, so is this a handball? Is this not handball? And please, can you explain why this is and this isn't? Suddenly you realise there are all these inconsistencies and refs are being exposed because they're being given the time to make decisions and they're still buckling or seemingly a bit frazzled or sometimes seem to not really know the rules. I mean, we've had instances where they've had to apologise and come out and say that. But, you know, mistakes happen and all, you know, everyone makes mistakes in their jobs. And if everyone was asked to kind of explain exactly what it is that they're doing, you'd realise <laughs> there's a lot of incompetence there. And I think VAR has actually highlighted the issues that Daniel's talking about. That's why I'm disappointed in Klopp going to Tierney because Paul Tierney, he sees a decision. He knows now he has VAR behind him. He thinks, I, I can leave that. VAR will advise me on what happens. VAR doesn't rule that it's a penalty, doesn't ask him to go and see the monitor. And then Paul Tierney then gets in the neck from the manager who says, you're the problem. Whereas actually... His, his thought process has completely shifted because he thinks he's got a foolproof or a supposedly foolproof system behind him to help him make decisions that in those incidents, potentially they're undermining decisions, not helping him make them. Yeah. What would you do, Daniel? Uh, well, I wouldn't have introduced VAR for mm. starters. Uh, I'd have a, a massive, ze- I would have had a massive zero tolerance policy on dissent for years and years and years. You've got, you know, Premier League football is screaming off in referees faces for the last 10 years and right. they're not paid enough for, to make but that they did that respect campaign surely you recall <laughs> yeah this is it and 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 to be fair we're all you know we're all culpable we all talk about refereeing decisions they are the kind of archetypal you know the villains of the piece because that's their role in in the kind of stage performance that football is but if that's going to be the case then we're going to have to support them or enable that working environment to be more pleasant otherwise we're going to run out of them and this shortfall that is kind of creeping up through the uh, the pyramid mm. and through the generations how, how serious is it because i think a lot of us will have read about it and thought well yeah but we're never not going to have referees are we how, how dramatic is that it's, it's massive yeah it's massive um you've got to remember to become a premier league referee you basically have to go through about eight to nine years of constant assessments um for the first four or five years of that, you're probably getting paid no more than 100 quid a match. You finally get into the National League level, which is, you know, the elite of the elite by refereeing standards, and you're getting paid 300 quid a match plus match expenses. Um, even in League One, you're probably getting twenty five, thirty thousand pounds £30,000 a year, which is not nothing, but it's also, you know, <laughs> it's not a huge amount compared to the some of the players you'll be refereeing. And it's people just, it's not worth it. We've got a huge issue where we don't have we have a very small number of, of non-white referees because they people in of those communities feel that they're more likely to get abuse, mm. which that kind of manufactures a shortage in itself. And the argument I always see is that, well, why don't we just bring over referees from abroad, which strikes me as so arrogant. Like Maybe they don't want it. Maybe their countries need referees as well. Like You right. can't just... It's such a consumerist point of view to think, oh, if we run out because we've abused this lot... Also, we tried that with <laughs> truck drivers and nobody came. Yeah, it, well, it's mm. just... And, and I don't know, it won't get any better because I think the argument on referees and their performance and their competence has now gone so far that we're unlikely in the VAR era to ever pull it back. And from an international perspective, that's very interesting because here uh, England uh, is seen as a, a, a model to be followed uh, because they are on World Cup finals and Champions League finals. You know, how many uh, Engl- English or British referees we've seen uh, doing these big games. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's very interesting. There's something as well, especially at this time of year. I remember talking to Keith Hackett about this, the former um, referees chief and, and referee. He was, you know, referees are knackered like all the players are. Um, you know, they're, their workload is relentless, just like the players is. And that lack of strength and depth that Daniel talks about just exacerbates the problem because we're so reliant on a few. So that means they just get overworked and overworked. Um, and you and you have situations like this. But I do think VAR, what it's done is by killing so much that's good about the game, it does make people feel even more annoyed because you are saying, well, don't worry. Like, yeah, we, we, you can't celebrate goals, but at least we'll get set decisions right. But then they don't. And, mm. you know, and, and what's so annoying is we had a situation, you know, referees were getting like 90 odd percent of decisions correct. It, it was a it was something that t- to get this like 
teeny weeny increase for all that you lose just seems mad and this and you know decisions made by people who don't really get the game right or or, or at least have made their way through years and years and years of Underpaid no, I don't and... mean the referees. I mean oh, the people okay. who who decided that VAR was a oh, good sorry. thing. In which I, case... I mean, yeah, I, d- I don't mean the refs. I mean get the game as in the people who put all the pressure on them to do it, and then decided, you know, the governing bodies that then were like, yeah, let's 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 go ahead and and do it without thinking of the all the suits. unintended consequences. Yeah. Still, yeah. At least, <laughs> exactly. At least they might get the twenty eighth of December off. That's yeah. a nice thing. <laughs> Uh, lovely bit of perspective there, Daniel. Uh, well, with that, let's move on uh, to touch on some of the other things that happened this weekend next. Hi, listeners. How are you? I'm Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. Super Sunday had a nice festive feel to it, didn't it? We had drama, plenty of goals, tackles flying in, and a share of the spoils. With Spurs coming into the game with no football for 14 days, and Klopp's Liverpool taking scamps for fun of late, one would have been forgiven, predicting Liverpool a whitewash. But no, Conte's troops kept Mo shackled and battled with honour to a 2-2 draw. The fiery Italian once again showing that when it comes to motivating his players, there is very few who do it better. And if fist-pumping was an Olympic event, Conte would be a gold medalist. Next up for Tottenham on the agenda is West Ham in the Carabao Cup on Wednesday night, and Conte, who has been a bit of a trophy magnet over the years, will hope his side can see off the hammers and book a last four berth. In terms of the betting Spurs, who are 5-1 to one to lift the Carabao Cup, are the 11-8 favourites to beat West Ham. The draw is 9-4 to four, and the West Ham win is 15-8. to eight. But if you fancy Conte and Spurs to go all the way to Wembley in May, the Paddy Power traders, who will be necking down the eggnog this week, make Spurs 12-1 to one to lift the FA Cup. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org. And remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Carabao Cup quarterfinals due on Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday supposedly features Arsenal, Sunderland. Wednesday, Liverpool at home to Leicester. Spurs hosting West Ham, who put Man City out previously. And also Brentford, Chelsea. Man City, free from the pressures of the Carabao Cup, have in the meantime nosed clear in the Premier League. Uh, Liverpool drawing at Spurs. Chelsea drawing away at Wolves. A Man City romping to a 4-0 victory away at Newcastle. That's their eighth straight Premier League win. Comes hot on the heels of that midweek 7-0 victory over Leeds. And they got a bit of help from the home side in this one, eh? Yeah, they did. They're in this mood at the moment, City, where they I mean, they just look incredibly ominous. We know the best way to beat City or to unnerve City is to score reasonably early and, and hope that they kind of fall into this panic spiral that they occasionally do in defence. Um, they've conceded one goal in the first half of games this season, I mean, in the Premier League, and they've scored 22 times. I think they've scored, they've won eight in a row, and in half of those, they've scored in the first seven minutes of the game. It's just, we are now at the stage, and I think we last had it um, during... I think it was the second half of 2018-19 where lesser teams than them are going into the match thinking, do you know what, let's just keep this to 1 or 2 nil. let's move on, let's go to the next game and let's try and win that one. There's this psychological advantage they are now going into games because they control the ball so well and make you work for it so much that as soon as they get a lead, it's, it's almost not worth chasing it. Um, yes, Newcastle were a incredibly culpable in their opening goal and I, I actually think the second goal as well it was a brilliant finish from Cancelo but Isaac Hayden goes to you know to use the famous journalist line a fire engine going to the wrong fire um, but yeah they, they are just completely dominant and we can at least replay the referee chat for this game as well because there was an well, absolutely yes. shambolic penalty decision mm. Natalie let's talk about Jacques Cancelo then is he approaching Trent levels now? Trent levels that's that's interesting because I, I see them very different from one another. 
because I think they are creative in different ways. Uh, even the movements, the, the runs that they do on the pitch, I think it's just they, they see the game in different ways and they intervene. The, their offensive uh, runs are, are a bit different from one another. I think it's just a matter of taste if you prefer Cancelo or if you prefer prefer Trent. But Which it's been a prefer? joy. I think I, I really like Cancelo. I really do. <laughs> because I think uh, he's he's much on the border of being a midfielder than than Trent. So I think in this sense it's it's a bit more complex. But Is he- I th- is he mm. is he a midfielder who plays at right back as opposed to Trent, who's a right back who essentially plays in midfield? Is that? I think that that can be a good definition okay. of, of both of them, definitely. I think what they are is they are players who who arrived um, ready to be molded and have been molded in their manager's image. You've got Trent Alexander Arnold, who's this kind of bangs and whistles and whiz pops and running up the pitch and scoring free kicks and he's very Jurgen Klopp he's very all energy and then you've got Jao Cancelo who seems to weave his way up the pitch by making about six one twos and just <laughs> moving further and further up the pitch with each one two and then decides to knock it in the top left hand corner he's all about that kind of sleek control uh, and in brilliant ways uh, and I agree with Natalie completely they are they are totally different and it makes it very very hard to to pick which one I'd prefer they are kind of sculpted in their manager's image. James, I just wondered, how good was he in Italy I mean, when he was at Juve? And yeah, Inter- no, I mean, did was... you think, wow, he's going to be world class? Or I mean, in as much as my opinion is worth anything, uh, <laughs> he was good, but there was no way that he was this player. And when he went to... And the one thing about him was that you always felt he's a great player going forward, but he's not really a, a, a defensive player. Uh, player at all so you you can have him out there but you're going to have a bit of an issue and with Man City obviously there there's a level at which they play in which that almost becomes irrelevant uh, but I, th- I think he's the level of consistency he's showing is far beyond what what, what he was uh, producing in in Turin uh, yeah another great example of a player I think being improved by as, as you were mentioning uh, in, improved by his manager yeah, another chapter of the Guardiola Klopp uh, pick hmm. your side thing that's very interesting and and regarding City uh, I was in the Leeds match and, and after the Leeds match and watching Newcastle uh, afterwards it just feels like City entered like their champions mode you know it's not just playing well because they've mm. been doing this all season. It's more that like we've seen the past few seasons where you can't really see how or where or when they're going to drop that many points, you know? So many things can happen, injuries, we know that, but they're just they, they just play like champions because of course that's what they are. And, and even the interviews are starting to to sound a bit similar like Pep saying, "Okay, first half was one of the worst we played this season. They won for new." And he's saying like we got a a good result from a not so good performance. I love that because, of course, they they, they won for new and 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 he keeps getting upset with this with these details that need improvement and that makes City what they are. You know, mm. uh, you you could say those two performances that you cite have come against teams that are underperforming and certainly under strength at the moment, Newcastle and Leeds. But then having said that, they are three points clear of Liverpool and they have already played Liverpool away and I think all their major opponents away from home. So Yeah, yeah they've played looking... they've played they've played Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester United, Tottenham and Leicester away from home city now. So yeah, I mean they're not immune to dropping points at home. That's actually this season, bizarrely, where they have dropped them against Southampton and, and Palace. But yeah, it does look a little bit ominous for the rest. Mm. Very good. Well, Chelsea were dropping points this weekend. Uh, that was away at Wolves. Only 12 shots in this match, which means that it is the Premier League game with the second fewest shots of the whole season, actually. Brentford Brighton, the only one with fewer so far. Chelsea... I think, Daniel, you wrote, played like a team who didn't want to be there. Yeah, I thought that, that Tuchel publicly set the tone. They they made it clear that they'd asked for the game to be called off. Tuchel was, made no secrets of the fact that he didn't think it should have been played and, and said the same after the game. But I'd kind of assumed that when you do that publicly, within the dressing room, you are saying, look, we need to park that. I've said that, I'm aggrieved about it, but we have a team which is 
incredibly strong and it was incredibly strong they made two mm. changes and one of them was to bring in N'Golo Kante so it, you know it was yes they had a very weak bench but they should have had more energy and there's no secret to when you play Wolves at the moment they've become these kind of binary champions and I think four goals in their last seven games in mm. total in Wolves games so you knew what they were going to do and yet they seemed to be almost surprised that Wolves were doing that and didn't didn't insert their own kind of intensity and energy into the game to make it happen which I thought was really disappointing because, as we've just said about City, you're not going to be able to afford to drop many points this season in games that you, in inverted commas, should win. And and that's one of those games that Chelsea should have won. I mean, it's the worst kind of game for them because they do seem to struggle. But when they go behind often, I feel like I'm not that confident they'll they'll rescue it back. And again, against a team like Wolves, as Daniel says, are really hard to break down. That they do, they can look a bit unimaginative for such for such a good team and with so many attacking players. Once the kind of the the, the plan A doesn't work, um, that that is where they sometimes just look a bit limited, and that's probably why in a title race where the pace is as it is, they've they've fallen off a bit in the last few weeks because they don't have those gears in the same way that a Liverpool or a City do. And the thing about Chelsea is not only. The, the, there's the lack of energy. There was the lack of energy against Wolves, but Chelsea is not being effective enough uh, enough up front. And like I asked Thomas Tuchel about that after the the Everton match because this has been going on for a while. They haven't been effective enough on the final third. And he said, I don't know. I don't know why this is happening. And and when you play a team like Wolves, you're not going to get too many chances. And if you're competing against teams like Liverpool, like Man City, you need to step up when it comes to scoring goals because their standards are too high. And you just need to score goals. So the, the, the good part was that Chelsea got a clean sheet, which was a big uh, uh, point uh, in the past few rounds. And Thiago Silva, another great match. He's always so calm. He does the most simple things in the classiest way. You know, he's not the defender who's going to be running up and down. He just goes for uh, to you know for the right balls. But uh, well, Chelsea did showed some improvement on 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 second half, but uh, in terms of scoring goals and creating, they're just they're 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 a bit short compared mm. to Liverpool and compared to Man City. A word for for Wolves, who Bruno Lages has turned into this fairly supreme defensive team. He's got Connor Cody leading the defence, which is no surprise. He, he's turned Romain Sice into one of the best defenders in the league on current form. Uh, Raya Al-Aignori, um Wolves fans raving about his performance. Max Kilman at the weekend. He, he seems to have been able to organise a defence incredibly quickly. Um, and like with Tuchel at Chelsea, I think his plan is to make them solid at the back and then move on from that and try and knit together the attack because he struggled to do that. He struggled to fit in Adama Traore. He struggled to get clear-cut chances to Raul Jimenez. But yeah, they look really strong and they're in a really good position in the league now. So we shouldn't. it shouldn't all be you know negative on Chelsea. Wolves were excellent at doing what they apparently now do in every game. I mean, just just on Chelsea, just on how kind of chronic this is. I mean, if they last, they've won two of their last six games, and those two wins were six league games, and they were Watford and Leeds, and both of those games, certainly Leeds, they could easily not have won. So th- this this has been dragging on for a little while now, and um, first really big big test of Tuchel's time there. I mean, obviously it all seemed to click so quickly last season, so it'll be interesting if he can adjust. They're currently six points behind Man City Wolves, meantime, up in the top half of the table in eighth place. Now, still to come in this totally, if you've ever thought how great the Euros would be if you could stick Brazil and Argentina in there, then boy, do UEFA have some news for you. <laughs> uh, and uh, also next up, Arsenal's young guns having some fun away at Leeds. Hey, why is it called Boxing Day? Nine Premier League games on. It should be called Football Day. Yeah, that all leftover turkey sandwich day. Well, you definitely ate more than nine of them last year. <laughs> it's a feast for football fans on December the 26th, and Paddy Power's got a knockout offer just for Boxing Day. It's a completely free £5 bet builder to use on any of the nine Premier League matches on Boxing Day. Paddy Power! Pretty much online bet, but a bet only. Min two plus legs, maximum free £5 bet per customer. Must have previously deposited to avail. T's and C's apply. 18 plus be gambled away. Listeners, we're delighted to say we've teamed up with Shelter this Christmas to support their No Home Kit initiative, which will help those people who have no safe place to call home. 
Homelessness in this country is getting worse and it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. Every 90 minutes, 25 households in England are made homeless. That's over 400 households every single day. To help put this front and centre of people's minds, you'll see clubs from across the footballing ladder wearing their away kit or their third kit rather than their usual home colours for their Boxing Day fixture. How can you get involved? Well, if you're going to one of these games, you too can wear a non-home kit to show your support and you can also text the word HOME to 70455 to donate £5 to Shelter. That's H-O-M-E to the number 70455. Text costs your standard network rate plus £5 and Shelter receive 100% of your donation. So get texting today and find out more at shelter.org.uk slash nohomekit. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Saturday, the only game that went ahead took place at Ellen Road and Leeds supporters may feel they should have had a bit of an asterisk beside it given the absences they had, but Leeds losing 4-1 at home to Arsenal. Uh, We'll talk about Arsenal in depth in a second, but first of all, Natalie, let's talk Martinelli. Yes. What a great finisher he's becoming. I think this is uh, what's most impressive. He's 20 years old, you know, and his second, the second goal especially just shows it perfectly. He's, he's, we've seen before how he finishes are just like really good, but now we're seeing in a more consistent way because we've, we've been seeing more from Martinelli. Uh, Arteta is making a strong point, and, and he always made this strong point of just giving it time. He's very young, but you see everything that's happening around Arsenal and with the youngsters and the energy and the freshness that the, the Arsenal fans have been asking for for such a long time. And I think these young players, such as Martinelli, they, they just brought this to the team. And, and he's Martinelli, he's such a nice kid. You know, those very young talents who just get, get lost in the way? I, I, I would be very surprised if that happened to, to Martinelli because he has a good structure around him. He has a very supportive family. He's very driven. They always prepared him to, to this moment of him mm. playing in Europe because he had spells in England before just so he could get used to the European style of football, which is not something common uh, among uh, Brazilian players. So he, he, he was manufactured in a way ever since he was very young and now he's 20 and he's just ready to play in the European stage and you can see this. Well, you, you talked about before and Jack Lang's written about this as well, the, the project that the Martinelli family had. Are they ahead of the curve now with, with how he's doing at the moment? Gold medal with Brazil this summer, four goals in his last six Premier League appearances and effectively poised to take over as the kind of central striker at, at, at Arsenal now. Yeah, I think that the next step for him is definitely uh, having more opportunities in in the in the national team because he's been playing in the in the young teams and he's been playing for the national team for a while and the coaching staff they obviously really like him because not only he has so much quality but he's he's a group guy you know he's not gonna he's not gonna be a handful for you for for Arteta or for anyone in, in the national team like some youngsters are and he's very disciplined very focused so honestly I just see positives in in his future not only because he's very talented but also because he's just mentally and and his the structure around him is just it everything is very prepared for him to you know take the big stage yeah, I know with Arteta, it's tempting to view everything through this sort of pet prism. But I have found the way he's spoken about Martinelli reminiscent of how Guardiola was with Phil Foden. And that there was this, you know, big, big clamour. Why isn't Foden playing more? You know, play Foden. He's amazing. And, and there was a similar thing with Martinelli for, for a little while now. Um, and Arteta has kind of been like, you know, just relax. He's going to get his chance. He's still really, really young. And I think he's managed that really well because he now he seems ready and it's crazy how young he is i mean he's not 21 until next summer um and his improvement is amazing it's so exciting what do you make natty this thing he does where he winks at the end of interviews That's <laughs> I, I think it's <laughs> just because he's murder. nervous honestly <laughs> is that why he does just, it yes absolutely That's... he's not trying to be charming i think he's just nervous you know and he doesn't know how to finish a sentence because he's not his english is okay but he's not he's like he's not super comfortable in this giving an interview in English position so he just gives a wink and yeah it's funny right everyone likes a (laughs) wink right yeah of course why not 
we previously got a bit of flack uh, touching on Arsenal's habit of doing two steps forward, one step back. But here, very much, this is a third step forward in a, in a row. Three straight victories and a particularly impressive first-half performance. 11 shots on target uh, in the first half at Ellen Road. Leeds, of course, were missing 11 players, although carelessly for them, they were through non-COVID issues. So I think that means they weren't able to wave a white flag for this fixture. But here's a worrying stat to add to the collection building up at Ellen Road. They've had 16 points now from their 18 matches so far this season. That's the joint fewest they've ever earned from the first 18 matches of any league campaign in their history in any division. Crikey. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously bad. Um, it, it's also at the stage where we I don't think we can talk about when everybody is fit because that's not a reality that is going to come soon and might not even come before the end of the season. And I think the, the really concerning thing is that there clearly is no plan B there or any appetite to impose a plan B because they they, they got beaten 7-0 by Manchester City and the response was pretty much to play the same way against Arsenal. Um, we are used to seeing teams that are falling into relegation fights try and be defensively solid and build from that. Leeds are not able to to be defensively solid at the moment, partly because of the absentees and partly because that's just not how they've played over the last two or three years. So, yeah, that is worrying. One question I did see raised of late is, given that Bielsa was famous for compiling massive dossiers on each of his opponents and even illegally scouting said opponents, why did he go through all that bother if his teams always play the same way at the end of the day? I think it's about um, feeling that you have all, all the information and feeling right. that you have that control, you have confidence in your own plan. I mean, he, he may be asking Leeds to play a different way, but they it might just be that they're defending so badly, both individually and as a collective, and that there's such a massive hole in midfield now without Calvin Phillips that mm. there's nothing they can really do. Um, but it, look, they've got two home games against Burnley and Newcastle to come. They are in a kind of crisis, but... I don't think it's going to take 40 points to stay up this season. And if they beat Burnley and Newcastle at home, those points basically count double. And they're verging on safe just by winning those two games, which is ludicrous, but I think probably how it ends up being. I mean, some of the takes on Bielsa, I do just think, have been unbelievably harsh. I think people forget... I mean, he finished in the, because he finished in the top half with Leeds last season, we kind of think like, oh yeah, Leeds are a top half team. That's how we should view them. He did that with a bunch of players that were largely championship standard when he inherited them. And they became good enough. In the same way, it's you know like talking about Andy Robertson being a world-class left-back. Bielsa, what he has done is just unbelievable. And, and they were talking after the game on Sky. Sunes was talking as if Bielsa plays in this way as almost just like a little bit of fun. He, he doesn't care about winning, but he likes playing good football. It's like, no, he plays this way. Because he thinks it will win games, and it does win games. He's been unbelievably mm. successful with Leeds. And then I saw some saying they, you know, now they need to, they should think about getting in a manager who can kind of keep them up. And it's just like the job he's done is yeah, that was staggeringly week, good. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I completely I, agree with Charlie. Completely agree. But I, I think well, he he's been going through this injury crisis, which is obviously uh, impacting the the team. But in terms of creativity. Sometimes you see spells of that. I, I was in the, the City match. I was in the, the Chelsea match as well. So you see these spells of aggressive, quick, creative leads who likes to have the ball and that's the best way that they defend. But but they can't sustain this during the match. I remember against Chelsea, uh, they, they were able to do this better for, for longer. And, and this is how they hurt their opponents. But right now, for example, Rafinha, he seems like an island. And, and you see players annoyed during the match because they're not doing the runs they're supposed to because they're not uh, used to playing together. Uh, so they're really missing Calvin Phillips in the, leading those actions uh, defensively, offensively. So th there's a lot going on there uh, with Leeds. And it, yeah, it's it's tricky for them. Mm. Natalie, while you're busy following the, the Premier League in Brazil, Atlético Mineiro won their first league title for 50 years. Crikey. Yes. And oh they did the God. double with the cup as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Belo Horizonte, the city from which Atletico is, uh, the city that Atletico Mineiro is from, 
they oh god they didn't sleep for <laughs> i think a week it was out it was crazy it, it was incredible actually and and there were uh two players uh that they were talking about a lot actually there's one player that they're talking about a lot which is hulk mm. uh the yes hulk uh every he's he's the, the, the guy everybody's talking about because he's 35. He spent most of his career in Europe. He played in Russia for, for a very long time and he played in Portugal as well. And and now he's back in Brazil. People are like getting to know him in a way and he's winning titles uh, for the first time. So it's a fascinating story. He's 35 and he doesn't get injured because he's really strong, but it's not only the physical side, he's very technical as well. So everybody's talking about Hulk. Diego Costa was in Atletico Mineiro, but he's been struggling with injuries. His his case is, is a bit different. He he When he played, he played well, but he couldn't have like a run of good matches because of injuries and injuries in big moments in, in, in big matches. But what's happening in Brazil, especially in Belo Horizonte, because you have Atlético Mineiro winning the league and you have Cruzeiro, who's the their, their main rivals and a very traditional team. They're on, on the second division and Ronaldo just bought Cruzeiro this weekend, which was a huge story. Ronaldo phenomenal. Not Cristiano, okay? Let's make it clear. And it was huge because it's like something that we've never seen in Brazil. It's very basic here in Europe. People buy clubs, but in Brazil that doesn't happen. So they, they, they recently who, who buys changed. clubs in, in Brazil then? No, there, there's no such thing. Like recently they changed the federal law that allowed football clubs to become companies so you can buy them. Okay. And now the clubs have to adjust their laws, their uh, their set of rules, uh, so they can vote if they want to become a company or not. And from like the most traditional clubs, Cruzeiro was the first one who approved that. And on the following day, Ronaldo announced that he became the wow. the major the, the owner of Cruzeiro. He bought ninety percent of the club, and everyone how is much, just how much did he pay for that? We don't know for sure. What we do know is that he's going to invest 400 million reais, which is like, uh, uh, I don't know, divide by seven. So, yeah, but it's a lot of money. Right. <laughs> it's a lot of money in reais because Cruzeiro is broke. Right. It's completely broke. And, and now there's a tendency that in Brazil, like this can be a big movement for other clubs who are broke as well and who can have investors. I know this sounds very basic here in Europe, but in Brazil it's like this huge story, especially with Ronaldo because he played for Cruzeiro and right. he left Cruzeiro in a very young age. He was only 17. So, Okay. Well, two questions. One, do you think it's a good thing, uh, clubs moving to this the system of private ownership? And, and secondly... Is is Ronaldo now kind of starting his own kind of city football group esque worldwide chain of clubs? Because he's already got second division uh, Real Valladolid in Spain. Yeah, he seems to be enjoying this this managing. It's it's very. He's been studying a lot this, and he has a lot of projects, and he's very involved with Valladolid. Uh, so I'm very curious to see how he's going to 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 manage both clubs uh, in that are obviously an ocean apart so uh but but yeah i think people are just they're still trying to understand it most people are seeing this in a positive way like oh my god ronaldo he came back because it's a great story he came back to his childhood uh club and bought the club and and he's trying to save the club because they're in such a poor form. Uh, and at the same time, people see it as a step forward uh, in terms of professionalism and the way that they're managing the club. But everyone is just getting used to the to the idea. And Cruzeiro is the first example. Probably we're going to have other clubs who, who are going to, through the same path. Uh, Botafogo, I think, is going to be the next one. So, so in general... It's a very positive thing. Like people are seeing it as a very positive thing, but it's all very new. So it will be very intriguing to to follow Ronaldo in this new involvement with with Brazilian football because he's been so related with like European and especially in Spain. So yeah, it's going to be great. Magnificent. We should say that uh, 
Atletico Mineiro deserve to win the League and Cup double because they have the greatest kit the in football one. history. The fan, yeah. the fan designed um, map kit, uh, which I it was basically only went on sale to the club members. So I managed to get hold of a guy who was a member of the club in Brazil. And he said, "Oh, it's, they, they said it's going to take seven months to to create the shirts and get them all out." So I still haven't, I still haven't got it. And he, he posted, so he he sent me a message last week to say it's going to cost loads to post from Brazil, but my mum is going to Portugal at Christmas, so I'm going to send the shirt with my mum, and she's going to put, post it to you from Portugal, so the postage will be less, which is great. And then last week, I realised that classic football shirts have got it on sale for exactly the same price as I paid <laughs> him seven months ago, which is. <laughs> lovely stuff you should have told me <laughs> yeah you were next on my list natalie yeah yeah it is a it is a lovely a, a, a lovely bit of kit uh yeah. now it'll be interesting to hear your take as well natalie and the, the brazilian view on the sudden announcement last week by uefa vice president zibi boniak that the european and south american federations had done a deal uh, to create the finalissimo of the uh, the meeting of European and South American national champs, but also to drop 10 South American sides into the Nations League. So from 2024 onwards, Boniek has, has announced, the UEFA Nations League will feature all 10 South American countries. The six top-ranked ones will go into the, the top level of the Nations League against the likes of Spain, Germany, England and France. Now, he was pretty... He, this wasn't couched in any kind of May or this is the plan, etc. This was, this is what's going to happen from 2024. Charlie, is is that your understanding? FIFA are currently, as we speak, having emergency meetings about this because they see this, not surprisingly, as a bit, a bit of a rival to Professor Wenger's uh, World Cup every two years notion. Yeah, this came really out of left field for me anyway. I don't know if any of you saw this coming, but... Um, I'm kind of curious to hear more about it just because it seems so um so crazy but I mean I don't know if it will actually if it will actually happen. It feels like politicking happening being played out in public doesn't it with it feels you know maybe cynically but it feels like a just a retort to FIFA's mm. biennial world cup idea mm. but UEFA have been fully against and I think we're told this morning that FIFA are fully against this new nations league idea so I suspect it's some sort of tit for tat politicking that will end up goodness knows where Gianni Infantino is is kind of busy doing this at the moment in that he's he's already trying to now intervene with Afcon and get that tournament cancelled for for the end of January. He the, the the Afcon members had a meeting in Qatar last week where Gianni Infantino effectively canvassing them to to try and postpone that tournament. So it does just feel like this is all 4D chess stuff from, from right. various individuals. Could they not join the Nations League as well, the Afcon? Exactly, yeah. And then just yeah. remove that obstacle to the calendar. What what's the view what what's the reaction been like in Brazil, Natalie, to this? Well, first we were very surprised as the rest of the world. Honestly, nobody saw it coming. It was out of the blue, literally. Uh, as as uh Daniel and Charlie mentioned, very political because uh Comebol didn't want the, the World Cup every two years and neither did UFA, so it was just very convenient and it was just like this is happening but we don't know exactly how this is going to happen there's going to be nations league one nations league a and nations league b and these uh these teams are going to be in nations league a and these teams are going to be in nations league b but we're still not sure in terms of logistics of course like because there is an ocean uh, between between countries and how pleased uh, European uh, teams are going to be like having to travel to South America or or other, the other way. Well, South American teams are very pleased. Okay, Brazil is very pleased with that because for years since the since uh, Nations League started, they have been struggling to find high level teams to play against in the in the international breaks. And I've I've heard this so many times from 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 people in the coaching staff and people who who work with with logistics uh, with the national team because uh, Brazil was heavily criticized uh, before World Cups and before Russia actually that they they didn't do their preparation really well because they 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 never 
they never got to play these big teams. So for Brazil, for Argentina, for teams who just, they, they really need this type of test, it was great news for them. It was really good. And, and the fans were very pleased with it, with it as well. But honestly, we still don't know how this is actually going right. to work. Okay. Does any, do we think it's actually going to happen? Yes or no? Daniel's shaking his head. No, I, I don't think. I don't think. And, and and to be honest, if it if it stops the biennial World Cup happening, it will have done its job. Right. Hmm. I did wonder though whether that's why they called it Nations League rather than Euro anything. The competition because it effectively leaves it open for anybody. Well, we already have. We kind of already have that with you know the Copper America has had Qatar in it pretty recently. Yeah. I mean, Qatar are in this bizarre situation where they've played or been invited to the Gold Cup, the Arab Cup, the Asian Cup and the Copper America and have played in UEFA qualifying. So, um, yeah, it's a small world, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Uh, The other thing uh, mentioned in this new synergy uh, between the South American and Euro federations is that the finalissima between the winner of the European Championship Italy and the Copper America, Argentina, will be happening. And this is going to be a regular thing. The first one on the June the 1st of next year at Wembley Stadium, uh, which remains, the events of last summer notwithstanding, a very popular venue for international fixtures, I guess particularly when they don't involve England. Yeah, mm. that's the key. I, it, it does seem, it feels like people are trying to play a sort of Jenga with the amount of football matches you can pile onto a schedule, doesn't it? It's like, <laughs> yeah, no, this is the finalissima. You haven't heard of it before, but we have to have this one now as well. It's mad. Right. It's absolutely it's mad. It's actually the direct opposite of, of Jenga, though, because in Jenga you subtract. True. Reverse uh, Jenga. Oh, no, but you have to put them back on top, don't you? Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, but we're <laughs> both right. How nice. Excellent. All right. Christmas uh, is coming. Board game time. <laughs> in, in a student house where no one wants to take the bins out and you're just precariously putting <laughs> things on top and it's just like, so this is, this is going to tip over at some point. Very nice memories there. Now, uh, that brings us to the end then of today's Totally Football show. We're back on Tuesday with the Euro show, wrapping up the uh, final round of fixtures mostly in the big European leagues. And then Thursday, well, we'll see what, uh, what there is to talk about. There'll be something, I'm sure. For now, quick mention for the fact that the Totally Football League show is out on this Monday discussing all sorts of things, including Blackburn, moving to within a point of the promotion places in the Championship, and also the Athletic Women's Football Podcast with that big relegation six-pointer between Leicester and Birmingham, and, of course, much, much more. Uh, Brilliant. Do enjoy those. We're back, as I say, with Rafa, uh, Jules, and James and Alvaro on Tuesday for now. Many, many thanks to Natalie and Daniel and Charlie and producer Charlie, etc. And you, listener... Have yourself a great time, be safe, and we'll speak to you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.